Welcome to Calliope's Sanctum, a bi-weekly story podcast hosted by me, writer Sylvia V. Linstead. This podcast is dedicated to Calliope, primordial and first muse of epic poetry and ecstatic song in ancient Greece. This podcast is a place of sanctuary for her oldest stories. It's a return to the wild garden, to the spring, to the ground of being and the source of inspiration in the earth. Here, we honor Calliope as muse of earth. Here, you'll find some of the stories beneath the stories of old Europe. Short fictional or poetic pieces written by me that explore elements of indigenous old European mythology. And this is a term coined by the late archaeologist Maria Gambutas. I'm with a focus on pre-Hellenic, pre-patriarchal Greece. So come sit with us in the honeyed light among the ripe pomegranates in Calliope's sanctuary where the stories that arise directly from the ground of being and life force can still be safely told and celebrated. Come lean against the sun-warmed stones with the fragrance of propolis and myrrh in the air and the trees heavy with autumn quince. This is the garden before the fall, a sanctuary for all hearts in this time. Join us and be revived. So, hello, everybody, and welcome to this new episode of Calliope Sanctum. I'm recording this episode on the new moon. In January, it's the 24th as I record, and it feels auspicious to be speaking the story that I'm going to share with you today on this day as a seed planted in the fertile darkness of the moon. So before I introduce Andromeda's dragons and the mythic background and context of the story, I just wanted to open this episode today by speaking to the really intense times that we're in, um, like on a global level, um, environmentally, um, and also politically, obviously, um, and then also personally. Uh, I just know that so many people I love are going through really difficult times right now, and there's a sense of chaos and intensity that can feel really frightening. Um, I certainly have been feeling this just really experiencing a lot of intensity. And so I wanted to share a few things that have been coming to me recently that feel like they want to be spoken to all of you listening, and they feel also connected to Andromeda's Dragons um, as kind of a good opening Introduction. So this extraordinary book came to me a few months ago. It's called The Way of the Rose, and maybe some of you have heard of it. It's by Clark Strand and Perdita Finn, and it's a book dedicated to um, the rosary and kind of this radical path of the rosary and the divine feminine. That's like the subtitle of the book. And so I've had this book for... A few months, but I didn't actually read it until a few weeks ago when it like kept fl- 
flashing in my mind. Um, almost like when I was asking for support, I would see the cover of this book. And then finally one night I woke up at 3 a.m. and I couldn't sleep at all. I just couldn't go back to sleep. So I picked up the book and started to read and read for a long time until I fell asleep. And immediately what came through the pages of that book was the voice of like Our Lady, you know, the Virgin Mary, right? Um, but really the Divine Mother in a way that I have almost never felt so clearly coming through the pages of a book um, and really feeling her as the force of, of life, the force that creates life on earth, the mother in that most deepest, compassionate, loving archetype. And the authors do such an incredible job of bringing that feeling through and the holiness of prayer, the the natural, miraculous power of prayer as aligned with earth and our hearts. And, you know, since I read that book, um, this message has been coming through even more strongly, and it was before, and now it is even more, that in these times right now, we have a choice, and it's a really hard choice because it's so frightening. Everything feels really frightening. But we have a choice, and it's like she, you know... Um, the mother, the power of life and the power of birth and life force on this planet is asking us to turn toward her, to touch all the living presences and processes that are the manifestations of the mother, the lady, you know, whatever you want to call her, and to lean into them even when you can't see how anything might be better even when, when it's hard to see anything at all, just to turn, to make that choice, to ask to turn toward life and toward cre- creation and toward the heart of the earth um, to choose to trust her right now. Almost like holding onto her skirts to lean into her even when we can't see and away from fear. Um, you know, I've had days of a lot of despair recently, but then, you know, in the flight of like one osprey flying, you know, toward the bay or the pink at sunset or finding the evening star when Runa and I go on our walk, I can feel this presence and it helps me turn back. Um, when I say her, I'm really referring to the feminine, you know, the mother and I really think it's important to speak of her as her, as the feminine principle, which has been so repressed and reviled in so many ways for the last you know, 3,000 years. But I speak of this as a principle, not around gender, but a universal energy, right? And force. Um, you know, so her as that from which life is generated and birthed and returned, like the womb and cosmos. So I just felt called and compelled um, to speak about this before before getting into the story because it's just helped me, this book and this turning. It's helped me so much in the last weeks, this, this trust, um, to actually trust in miraculous um, blossoming and regeneration, even in the face of so much intensity and fear that by turning and trusting, we actually generate, we support the earth, we support 
this presence and it's the greatest gift we can give right now is to keep choosing and aligning you know create aligning with creation and the potent creativity of the earth you know I'm just looking at this I have a series of pictures on my wall above my desk and of inspiring women and one of them is Vandana Shiva um and I was just remembering when I heard her speak last year and her being in her presence alone is like getting kind of um, realigned with the creative force of the earth when she speaks. But she was saying something about how, um, you know, when we let uh, a piece of earth return to itself and don't interfere, when we just let the processes of earth take over again, the diversity and create, uh, fertility that returns happens within a year. So the earth is always like um, f- coming back into alignment if we just let the powers of creativity lead us and life force. So when you need support, lean into that. Like lean into her and you will find relief. This is what I've found. Um, it's quite profound, the gentleness and compassion that's resting there just out of sight when we turn again toward compassion and toward that deep generative power of love that's on this earth. I think it's a radical act. I think it's an act of resistance um, to believe that. Um, an act of resistance against the systems that have damaged our planet and our souls for so long. Also read this book, The Way of the Rose. It's amazing. Okay, <clears throat> onward. So, on to the story. Um, so, Andromeda's Dragons is my own retelling of the story of Cassiopeia and her daughter Andromeda. Um, this is a Greek myth, again. And... Um, you know, the idea came to me to write the story of Cassiopeia and, and Andromeda from the constellation, really, the constellation Cassiopeia, which is one of the most prominent constellations in the night sky, in the northern sky, visible, you know, um, because it's in the northern sky near the pole star all year. So it's like you can always find that big W. It looks like a W of stars. Or an M, but mostly a W, but both. Um Interesting, eh? So it's an M. This M shape or W shape is one of the oldest symbols. Also, you know, when we look in the Paleolithic caves in Europe um, and then later in old Europe, the symbols that were inscribed on figurines and on offering vessels and then into um, Minoan Crete and their script, that sign, you know, is there all aligned along as connected to the feminine. Um, kind of like some have called it a meander sign, like a water sign. Um, interestingly, so in as a constellation, it's meant to depict a throne. And there's obviously more like stars in it, you know, but those are just that shape is just what you can see the best. And from the mythology that, you know, I grew up on and all of us is the most prominent story that we would have heard is that this is Cassiopeia's throne upside down in the sky as punishment. So she was this queen um, of Ethiopia, it said, that 
she boasted that she and her daughter Andromeda were more beautiful than the Nereids, the sea nymphs. And this really enraged Poseidon. So he sent floods and then also this sea monster Cetus um, to attack the kingdom where Cassiopeia and the, her king Cepheus reigned. And the only thing that would appease this sea monster and stop the floods, when they asked a wise man what to do, he told them that they needed to chain Andromeda, their daughter, to the rocks by the sea as a sacrifice for Cetus, and that Cetus would you know, come and devour her. Um, so Andromeda's tra- chained to the rocks, and this is like a classic p- painting you know, in many, um, throughout time. You know, the maiden, she has hardly any clothes on, she's tied to the rock, and then Perseus comes on his white horse, Pegasus, at the last moment and saves her. Classic. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and meanwhile, Cassiopeia, even though you know, they have performed the sacrifice of Andromeda and she's been saved. Poseidon still thinks she needs extra punishment, so he sticks her upside down in the sky in her throne, tied to her throne for all time this way. And, you know, if that doesn't sound like a reversal of the powers politically, right? I don't know what does. Because when you look um, kind of at the history of the constellation, I have this great book called Star Names, Their Lore and Meaning by Richard Hinckley Allen, which is an older book with a great kind of historic look at all the major constellations and stars. And very often this constellation was just called something like She of the Throne, like the lady on the throne. There's nothing about her being upside down on her throne. Um, In the Middle East, like in the Near East, in ancient times, um, this constellation was actually thought of as a henna-painted hand or sometimes a hand of a goddess holding a palm branch. And then much later, it was referred to actually as Mary Magdalene, which is really curious. So there's something going on here that is more than just this particular in my opinion, quite politicized story of the queen hung upside down in the sky for saying she was more beautiful than the sea nymphs. Um, and according to Robert Graves, his theory about Andromeda, specifically as the one chained to the rock, um, is that she is actually, this, this story was actually coming directly from Near Eastern myth and like Sumerian myth, and that she was Tiamat, the great sea dragon, sea Monster, she was called, but the great, um, chthonic, creative, feminine dragon force of that land, kind of the other face of Astarte. Um, and there's a story that's very, very similar where a hero named Bell on his white horse kills the sea monster, Tiamat. So, Interesting, and also this this suggestion that there's other depictions of a goddess like Astarte or like Aphrodite chained to a rock, and so there's this parallel. So all of those pieces together, um, after doing some research, were what compelled me to write this story, wanting to kind of return that constellation and that power to her true force and name. You know, this potent constellation in the northern sky that we see every single night. It's this great big M or W, this 
this shape of the water bearer, the the divine waters, the power of the the feminine in the waters, the womb of the earth, has been turned into this story of a queen punished upside down hanging from her throne. And I've just had enough of that. So this is my version. (laughs) And I believe that it gets at the roots of what's really going on in this story. And just to add, before I begin the reading, if you enjoy these stories these retellings, these reworkings, these kind of excavations of the old myths. You can find many, many more in poetic form, in short prose, in more audio recordings, and in some essays and explorations on my Patreon, which is dedicated to my time in Crete and researching um, this material. So there's a link in the show notes and in my profile if you want to read more. All right, enjoy. Andromeda's Dragons What chain, oh my grandmothers, have we been carrying since the day Andromeda was bound to a rock by the sea? They say she was chained because of her mother Cassiopeia's vanity. She was not. She was chained because of her mother's power, and all that her mother's power opened in that city by the sea where King Cepheus ruled. Cassiopeia never boasted to be more beautiful than an Ariad, as the stories tell. She was one. An old sea force. Cepheus, king of a great seaside port in a southern land, had married her for her beauty and the abundance of purple dye and gold ornaments he took from her people when he plundered their island and stole their queen for his wife. He did not know that her mother folk were women from the sea. He did not know that her beauty came from the dark moon. Every month, she became a sea dragon. When the moon was dark, her blood turned her scaled and beautiful and too powerful to remain within walls. When she was a dragon, she could not be contained. When she stepped inside her bleeding womb, she stepped into the sea and knew it for her tears and the tears of all the ones who came before her, their loss and their love together. Husband, you have married chaos, she told him at the end. You have married the chasm from which life arises and returns. I could swallow you whole, but I will not. But for many years before that, she managed to hide her secret. Theirs was a rich house. She had her own quarters. They smelled of lotus oil, of myrrh, of juniper smoke. Her robes were purple. She washed herself in water consecrated not by her husband's priests, she would not let them touch it, but by the stars, by the great M in the sky, water pourer or water bearer, depending on the season and time of night, the oldest oracular sign of her mother's people, two V's, two vessels, mother of oceans, mother of caves, 
To these stars she traveled when the moon was dark and she became a dragon. They were her throne. She was murex purple, with a tail like a snake and patterned with chevrons. She used her monthly bleeding as an excuse not to see her husband those nights. She was always back by morning. The sea and the sky were both her countries. From inside the sea, she could see the stars. She drifted. She gathered darkness. She bathed in it. In the pulse of sea, of wave, of moon, of galactic winds, and the tones the planets make, she spun circles. She rippled and twisted and dove. She made chaos. She spun whirlpools and black holes. She made gravity, too, for bringing back together the pieces of lost dreams, stray children, broken-hearted lovers, and fishermen who knew the ocean as mother and had been blown astray. She conceived her daughter with one of them, a man who she found adrift one night of his own choice. He wanted the darkness. He wanted nothing but ocean in all directions. He knew he was lost in his life, and the only way to save himself was by going all the way into the darkness without a sail, and trust either his death or the epiphany that would change his life. He was a simple fisherman. He had lost his whole family to a coastal raiding party. His sister, his brother, his mother, his grandfather, even his dog. Only the ocean is as deep as my loss, he said to the dark the night she found him. Now at least I am not only drifting above great depths inside myself, but outside too. And the sea is very beautiful. Here I am close to the source of all things, to my beginning. I would like to forget what it was to be a man. I would like to forget and become a dolphin or a whale. I would like peace. He prayed this to the water. Cassiopeia was listening. She was rising, one violet eye, then a great nose above the water. He did not scream. He just opened his eyes wider. He was handsome, somehow more handsome because of his grief. It made him real. His eyes had the earth's weight in them. She turned herself into a woman then and came aboard. She held him close. There was gray in his curls, though he was young still. His hands were working hands, unlike her husband's. She liked them. He did not fear her at all. He wasn't sure she was real. He thought he had already lost his mind and was glad. When Sirius rose before dawn, it was that high, hot season she changed him and his boat with her into another great sea creature. Cetus, he was called. He was no monster, like the legends say. He was her beloved. She knew she had conceived a child with him that night, this man who had let the ocean so far into himself that he did not fear her. And so it was her gift to him. Then all the knowledge of cetaceans came into him, the songs and languages of celestial origin and depth beyond human memory. He knew what the moon said to the tide. He knew Cassiopeia's true nature. He kept the secret. 
He swam with her every dark moon. Their daughter was Andromeda, and after her birth, Cassiopeia could no longer hide her power from Cepheus. Oracle came into her unbidden like an illness. She grew scales and coils as she uttered the mantic hymns in front of his advisors, in front of delegates from other kingdoms in the bathhouse. The gleam of salt and star was at her teeth. Once, she went into a rage when Cepheus spoke to her like a child, ridiculing the blood on her legs. She would not hide it. And the unkempt hair and dirty feet of little Andromeda, who obeyed none save Cassiopeia, and was wild as a wolf pup. In her anger, Cassiopeia changed right before his eyes. Not, not half, not simply Sibylline, but all the way. She became vast and scaled, purple as the murex. She tore the bed curtains, the marble walls, the window. Little Andromeda, clinging to her hand, changed with her. She became a small carnelian creature, a dragonlet, beautiful as carved seal stone, or an amulet. Cepheus saw then that he was not in possession of women, but of forces. He saw that this creature could not be his daughter. He smelled the smell his wife always carried after her days in solitude during her monthly blood. It was the smell of her power, not her seclusion. It was the smell of her freedom. It smelled of animal, of night air, of wet stones, of metals like the stars make. After that night, Cepheus did everything he could to bind and belittle his wife. He called her savage and sorceress, a witch, like all women, a slut, irrational, raging. Wherever she went and her daughter went, he could not understand and was afraid to follow. If only he had asked her, let me follow you there. Let me know you, Cassiopeia, in your wholeness. Mother of chaos, wife of stars, Once, very long ago, she had wished he would, but he would not. She might have eaten him whole, but in those days, there was no place for a dragon to hide from the wrath of men, save in the stars. And she still thought it was better to live as a woman and a dragon only in hiding than not to live at all. By the time Andromeda was a young woman, she was so beautiful and so strange, no man would come near her. And yet, she carried a sweetness that everyone wanted to touch. As each year passed, Andromeda grew more beautiful. Not just in figure or in face, but in depth, in purpose, in clarity, and in wildness. She looked like her mother, but softer. Marriage to Cepheus had made Cassiopeia harsh in her pain and frightening to those who did not know her. Andromeda, shielded by her mother's power and her mother's hurt, retained her own gentleness. She had yet to be sold in marriage. She had yet to surrender her freedom. She didn't imagine she ever would. She did not know what it meant to be chained. When her bleeding came, and she no longer needed her mother's hand to change her into that creature of carnelian and light, she did not hide her nature like Cassiopeia had. 
Her changing was not a chaos or a rage. It was sweet as a spring's water and as wild. Many days, save those at the dark moon, she spent by the sea talking to small fish who knew her father, Cetus. She called up octopuses and asked after their dreams. She refused sale of her charms or words to any who would hurt them, but gladly shared what she could with the ones who approached her in wonder, asking the secret songs of the sea and of transformation. Women came to her more and more often, wanting to touch her hands, her hip, her dress, her long black hair, which always hung in three braids down her back, wanting to touch her skirts, woven after the fashion of her mother's people with great crisscrossed seams of color, like snakeskin chevrons of light. They wanted to see her serpent legs, her changing, her power, and they wanted to know if they had it in them, too, to change at the dark moon. Of course you do, she told them. It has been coiled in the eggs of your womb since you were a tiny fish inside your mother's body. All you have to do is speak to those eggs until one begins to grow and grow. You'll feel it growing. First, as small as a mustard seed only, but translucent like a star, with the map of your whole heart and the unnameable scent of your essence imprinted there. You will know it by the feeling you have, that you've never before beheld something so beautiful or felt such peace, and that it is yourself that you are beholding, the piece of you that was here before even your name the piece of you that traveled through the galaxy in dragon form, threading between stars, and fell to earth in a burst of flame. It's been there in the ashes of every grief and every ecstasy, every moment of belonging, when you've felt at home, when you've gone barefoot, when you've kissed a child, when you have been kissed by your beloved, when you have eaten a ripe fruit from the tree. There, it is there. It's like a shard of quartz, or a drop made of star. And when you speak to it, it will begin to grow and grow until a strange light starts to come from your belly and from behind your eyes and then from your ribs. Don't be afraid. Turn your eyes inside. Turn yourself inside out. Your scales will shine with precisely the light that you found in the ashes. Anywhere life has made a fire in your heart. This is what Andromeda told the women who came to her. One by one they went away, smiling a secret smile, because even the mention of that bright seed, gold and tiny as a mustard, seemed to remember its truth to them, like a small, high bell chiming, a sound they hadn't heard so clearly since the day they were born. Something extraordinary began to happen across the city, Slowly at first, one woman each month, then two, then five. By the time Andromeda reached the age of 19, the sky was full of incandescent bodies at the dark moon. There were so many, it wasn't dark at all. The sea flashed and glowed. Kitchens were empty for three days together. Husbands grumbled, then raged. The clothes went unwashed. There was nothing to eat. The children were unmanageable, as willful as wild dogs. Grandmothers and aunts, well past their bleeding, were called upon to help. 
but they only shrugged and laughed gleefully and stood watching their daughters and their nieces and their grandchildren lighting up the sea and the sky. They wept and danced at the shores until daybreak. But after three months of this, Cepheus could make excuses to his allies no longer, nor stand the humiliation of being in possession of such uncontrollable women. All the women of his city, of his kingdom, had become uncontrollable thanks to his wife and the girl who was not his daughter. They all contradicted their husbands and fathers. They unbound their hair. They talked close together, leaning against one another's bosoms, and made their men nervous. A strange new scent emanated from many of them, sweet and musky and clear. It turned houses sideways with desire. Husbands and other women's husbands wanted to come near that scent so badly they grew violent. It made them tremble. They wanted to capture it and hold it forever. Fights broke out in the streets and behind doors. The city was in an uproar. If Cepheus had only asked Cassiopeia, she could have calmed the chaos, but he did not. Instead, he seized Cassiopeia and Andromeda the day before the following dark moon and chained them in the center of his palace. Cassiopeia to her throne and Andromeda at her feet, for all to see. Their power was not such that it could break those chains. They were of iron. Their blood was the blood of women of copper. Iron iron stopped their magic in its tracks. An iron sword could cleave a copper one right in two. They could not change now. They could not fly away. They ate nothing but dark bread and water, brought once a day. Cepheus wanted to send a message. The men of his kingdom wanted him to send a message. Until they promised not to change, and to tell the women of the city the same, they would remain chained. Cassiopeia spat and refused. Andromeda said nothing at all. The chains muted her. She had not fathomed their weight or what true sorrow felt like. Cassiopeia held her daughter often during those weeks that turned to months. They sat together on the throne in chains as if Andromeda were still a little girl in her mother's lap and not a grown woman. Cepheus moved his council to the western wing. So only cold wind visited the women there and the guard with their bread. I am so sorry that I could not free us, Cassiopeia said to Andromeda softly, day after day, untangling her daughter's hair with her fingers. I am so sorry that this is what it means to be a woman of our people now. It was not always so. Once, I promise you, all queens were dragons. All queens spoke to the Ouroboros at the center of the earth, the one right beneath our feet, the one that swims a circle round the northern sky at night, who births and unbirths all. Once our men loved the scent of our power, the shape of our curves and scales. I am so sorry I brought this to you, my daughter. You were born at a time when women are the subjects of fathers and husbands and brothers and kings. I am so sorry. I could not free you. 
Our people descend from the Nereids themselves. Do not forget this. Your beauty is the beauty of the sea, of the deep, silent caves where only the light of the lanternfish touches. Your beauty is the curve of the dolphin's back. Your beauty is the beauty of our people, whose first mother was Aphrodite, who arose from the sea. When Cassiopeia and Andromeda did not join Cetus in the sea at the dark of moon that month, and then the next, the great sea creature fell into despair, and then into rage. He understood the world of men well enough to suspect the worst. He swam the salt waters closer and closer to shore, calling for his beloved and his daughter through the starlight in the high tones that whales sing, keening for their kin. But they did not come. The skies and sea were empty of shining women in their dragon skins. Cetus had already lost enough in his life. He could not bear to lose any more. He had been a creature of peace before, a man of peace, swimming far from the ships of kings and traitors, keeping himself hidden, drifting down to the deepest ocean trenches to listen to the darkness there and to the skein of whale song that reverberated where worlds were swallowed and remade. But now he broke. He rose above the sea's surface and swallowed whole any ship that bore the emblem of Cepheus. He was as vast and silvery as a moon, and he was merciless. Fisher folk he spared, but he smashed any kingly vessel he saw. He knew what power it was that had stolen his beloveds. He did not know if they lived or died, but he knew whose fault it was that they no longer lit the night. Cepheus could muster no force powerful enough to stop Cetus. All were swallowed or smashed against the rocks. Soon enough, there would be no young men to call upon to defend his waters, neither among his own subjects nor those of his nearest allies. The advice of his priests was little better. Elaborate sacrifices of goats, black bulls, and several caskets of wine did nothing at all to appease the one they called Sea Monster. One morning in the third month of Cetus's rage, Cepheus broke. He went to Cassiopeia on his knees. He knew that only she, of all those living and dead in his kingdom, was powerful enough to stop the sea monster. But he did not anticipate the manner of her reply. He was frail and trembling before her. Despite three months of near starvation, she was not, and neither was Andromeda. They were wan, but luminous. Their bones showed through. Their power had waned little. There was just less flesh between it and the world now. The throne room smelled of musk and blood and stone. Cassiopeia's eyes were so hard on her husband's that he trembled more. That was what brought him to his knees. Tell me, wife, what to do to stop this monster. He is no monster, she replied without looking up. Why should I tell you? It was not a question. You know then? She did not reply. You know. Tell me, wife. My daughter. She replied. What? What? Said Cepheus. Give him my daughter, Andromeda, 
she said again, her dark eyes flashing. She is the only worthy sacrifice. Tie her to a stone by the sea's shelving edge. She's the only thing that will appease him. If what I say proves true, free me too. That is all I ask. Free me from your house, from your bed, and from your kingdom. Cepheus looked between Cassiopeia and Andromeda in horror. His wife frightened him more than she ever had before. How could she say such a thing? Andromeda watched him with eyes still unhardened by betrayal. They were even more difficult to look into than Cassiopeia's. They were so light and so calm. Had she not heard her mother's plan? And yet, she still held tight to Cassiopeia's hand. I go willingly, Cepheus, she murmured. She did not look up at him again. The following day she was taken, hands bound in a dark rope, to the edge of the city. There, she was tied to a great stone that could be seen all across the port. She did not fight. Her calm frightened the men who tied her. She was dressed in the finest Cepheus could procure from the seamstresses of the city. Gold leaf sang at the edges of her skirt, its dye a blue that only the sea and full sun could match. Cepheus would not have his sacrifice appear unkempt. He made a great show of her beauty. Her- heroism stirred in the hearts of the men of the seven nearest kingdoms as words spread in one long cry across the land. Andromeda is to be sacrificed to Cetus. Andromeda, that beauty of the sea, her virgin body, is bound to a stone like meat at the altar, all at her mother's bidding. But to all who observed her, bound to that stone far out in the white crashing tide, she appeared as peaceful and as strange and distant as a star. In fact, she was so far inside herself, she noticed no one. She was calling to her father. She was mustering a silent cry without the help of her scales so that he might find her. Her cry was one unfurling of sonar across the ocean floor. It took her all night and the best part of the day to muster it. But in the seventh kingdom... On that same day, word reached Perseus of Andromeda's beauty and of the opportunity to prove his strength. A woman chained to a rock by her own mother and father as a sacrifice to a sea monster? He would kill the monster and win the woman and his reputation would be made. She would be the making of him. Already Medusa had begun to build his fame. A sea monster would be easy. He came by horse and took Andromeda entirely by surprise. There was sweat on her forehead. He thought it was terror of Cetus, but in truth it was exhaustion from the effort it took to call to her father while chained and ironed and without her dragon scales. He thought the look in her eyes when she turned and saw him was virgin reserve, an attractive dismay and feminine disarray at being so near to a man. In fact, it was hopelessness he saw there. It was fear of him. She flinched away from his touch and would not speak to him. Here was a man who would chain her to him, as even Cepheus had not been able to do. 
a man who would attempt to chain her with his desire and her indebtedness to him as her savior. She choked down tears. He would kill the great whale, her father. He would take her freedom and call it heroism. What had she and her mother done when they planned this escape? Unknowingly, had they created a terrible trap? Perseus held Medusa's head in a bag. He crouched beside Andromeda, murmuring nonsense that he thought would soothe her. Her breast heaved. I have never been so close to losing my freedom as I am in this very moment, she thought, snatching her hands away from his touch, turning her cheek from his murmurings, which were as empty as if he had been speaking to a sheep. Medusa's head dripped. Andromeda thought she would be sick. Never before in her life had she despaired. Now she despaired. Her call had gone through the sea, and Cetus had answered it. She'd heard it, the faintest tremor, but she had heard he was coming for her. She was bound and ironed and could not run to warn him, to save him, and she had no energy left at all to muster another call of warning. She closed her eyes and went into her her own darkness. So far inside herself, she touched the earth beneath the sea. In that moment, Cetus broke the surface of the water, exuberant, leaping for his daughter to take her gently in his great mouth and carry her to safety. But Perseus was there in front of her, lifting Medusa's head from its bag. Andromeda could think of only one thing to do. She had sworn never to use her beauty against a man, but she did now. She said Perseus's name, low, tremulous, with a ragged breath and all the innocence her virginity could muster. He faltered at the sound, turning toward her, and she reached a hand to pull him close, to kiss him. He shuddered. Her body was soft and yielding as water, as light. In that moment, Cetus surged upward, smashing the stone that she was chained to. Andromeda dove into the sea. Perseus fell in after her. Medusa's head sank. Suddenly, there was not one sea monster, but two. A great silvery whale and a smaller carnelian red creature as bright and undulating as a snake. Then... They were gone. Already, they were free. Perseus clambered back ashore, dripping, cursing. He walked up the long streets of the city to tell of what he had seen. That Andromeda had been eaten by Cetus, the sea monster. That he had come too late. He didn't mention Medusa's head lost in the sea. He did not mention the red dragon that joined Cetus when the girl dove. Cepheus waited for two days to unlock Cassiopeia's chains just to be sure that she had spoken truly and Cetus was appeased. He was. He and Andromeda waited in the deepest tide for her. The night Cepheus freed her, Cassiopeia filled the sky with her fire and then the sea. She found her lover and her daughter like a stone falling through water to its origin. Three new stars shone that night around the great M in the northern sky, 
But no dragons or sea beasts were ever seen again in that time, in that long-ago kingdom, save in the far inside darkness of dreams. They stayed among the stars from that day on because there was no ground for them to live upon safely among the world of men any longer. They stayed among the stars around the great M, that throne, waiting. But the chain that we have been carrying Oh, my grandmothers, oh, my granddaughters, is breaking now. May they come down out of the stars. May they come up from the sea. Earth is dragon country. May we once again find ourselves free. Free.